0: What's up, family? Thank you for tuning in to the Dream Nation podcast. My name is Casanova. I'll be your host, and I'm excited to be bringing to you entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and trailblazers from around the world. Stay locked in with us because we're about to go on a journey that will change your life. What's up, Dream Builder? We are back again. and today's episode, I'm excited to bring to you, as I'm excited to bring to you every episode. But today, I think I'm gonna be learning just as much as you are, because we have one of the guys that are huge, that is huge in the real estate space, but he's not just flipping homes. He's not just buying hold. He's in a a niche that I like to think is one of the most profitable niches, but a lot of the times, we just don't know the backstory of it. So without further ado, please help me and welcome him my brother, Mr. A.J. Osborne to the show.
1: A.J., you want to go ahead and say what's up to Dream Nation? What's up, Dream Nation? I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, Excited to, to talk about this crazy world.
0: Oh, absolutely, man. And I don't know if you've listened, but the way that I always love to start off these shows is I compare us as entrepreneurs and thought leaders and change makers to superheroes. And the reason being is because we're constantly flying around the world, putting on a cape, and we're trying to solve some of the world's biggest problems. And so I know that that's what you've been doing, but let me ask you, a lot of the times if we're just looking at your social media or your websites or seeing you on podcasts, we see a Superman, we see a superhero, we see that S on the chest, but a lot of the times we can't describe on the backside, who is that Clark Kent behind the scenes, who's that guy? So my question to you is, when when the lights aren't on and when you're not doing interviews and everything else, Behind the scenes, who is A.J. Osborne?
1: Oh, that that's easy. I'm I'm a dad, a husband. I, um, I have four kids. My youngest is four. Um, and uh, behind the scenes, I'm chasing them around. I'm taking them up into the mountains. We're going fishing. Um, or we're just cuddling on the couch, and I'm smothering them as much as I can possibly do. Um, it, it's, you know, it, it's so interesting because I think that, like you said, I think people are like they assume – that superheroes inherently have these natural gifts and abilities and everything. But in the real world, economic superheroes or however you want to look like it just I don't want to say it's boring, but it's just normal. It's the little things that we decide to do and how we spend our time and everything that it's I'm very result driven, right? Goal oriented. I like processes that can make change and I want to see things happen. Um, and it's by changing your focus and changing on what you do on the little things, you don't need to be a superhero to have massive, massive results and massive change. And that's so important for people to know. And I think, you know, one of the things about my story that attracts a lot of people and everything was, um, you know, I, I became fully paralyzed, uh, quadriplegic and, you know, I couldn't do anything. So I, I couldn't bathe myself, nothing. Um, I laid in a bed on tubes, breathing tubes, couldn't speak. Um, and uh, I was there for months and it's one thing to think that, you know, that, that pride to get into you and say, you're amazing because of results that are happening in your life, right? Because you, you just got great grades. You've just got that job, you got that thing and you have this and we start to, it's like, we almost start to believe our own thing that we're telling ourselves. And, when I became paralyzed, I, I went mentally, emotionally, and in reality from whoever I was to zero, to zero, nothing. I couldn't even communicate, couldn't go to the bathroom, like nothing, right? And How old were you at this time? This was four years ago so four years ago yeah i'm still partially paralyzed on my lower extremities my ankles my feet i have something called drop feet Uh, but i've been in therapy and i was in a wheelchair then in therapy coming back for um the last four years and i still am on medications everything else like that but i'm very grateful obviously for where i am i was in rehab they told me i would never get out of my leg braces that would help me walk and move so i stopped going to rehab because I'm like, I don't need that in my life, obviously. I I, I already know all the things I can't do. <laughs> like That's very apparent. I don't need you telling me what I can't do. Um, so then I went home and my kids, they had no patience for it. They're like, your dad, you are going to play with us. You want to walk with us. And I wasn't right. in a position where I'm going to, I, I want to tell my kids no. It broke my heart. So I just forced myself to do it. They were all upstairs. My kids wanted me to take them to bed and I would walk up the stairs, even though every single step I took was like my legs were shattered and painful because my nerves had been destroyed. So I was in constant 24-7 pain. Um, and it was like one of those things where it's like, listen, I can either, I have a choice where I can either, this can become my identity. I'm this way. Or I could say, no, this isn't actually how it's going to be. And I'm going to, 2 I'm not talking about anything amazing, incredible or anything, right? I'm just not going to identify this way. That's not who I am. I want to be the dad that I want to be. I want to be kids. So I just kept going and kept doing things. I got up and I went to work. I mean, the day after I got out of the hospital, my brother had to come in and move me to take care of me. Um, and he woke up and got me up and put me in a, a wheelchair. So he helped my wife um, and they took me into the office. I was only there for like 20 minutes or not. But I came in, I'm like, I'm not dead people. So right. I know you haven't seen me what? for months on end, but I'm here. I'm not dead, so don't flippin' write me off. And uh, I was terrified of that being sad. So I started up three different companies out of my wheelchair, um, and since then my wealth's exploded. We have product businesses, service businesses. Um, I develop, convert, I buy bankrupt office buildings, retail centers, turn those into self-storage facilities. Um, we syndicate, um, yeah. So, whoa,
0: whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. There's, there's somebody watching, listening, including me. I know I can't be the only one right now. Like, first off, I, I'm curious to know, if you wouldn't mind sharing, how did the yeah. accident happen?
1: Yeah, so I had something that is called uh, Guillain-Barre. I'd never heard of this before in my life until I got in the hospital. Um, they couldn't figure out what was going on. It was like out of the blue. Like literally me and my wife were out planting trees. I just got back from California. I was out doing yard work, planting trees and everything. It was a Saturday. And I went in, my legs were hurting. I assumed it's because I hadn't slept much and we'd been traveling, something like that. And I'd been planting trees. Uh, I went to get in the bathtub because my legs hurt and I couldn't get out. My wife had to carry me out because my legs just stopped working. So I went from normal on a Saturday to I was being put on a breathing tube and put into a coma and then put into a uh, life support and on a breathing tube like that. Nobody even knew what happened to me. I just literally like one day just disappeared. Um, and I was healthy, young, right? So anybody listen to this, I'm I, I'm right now 37. So I was 30, whatever that was, three or four right. when it happened, right? Yeah, yeah. I was 33. Totally outdoors. I mean, once again, I was out planting trees everything. got four kids chasing around. I was running a a brokerage firm. So my dad had started an insurance brokerage firm where we sold insurance. So I was an insurance sales guy. That's what I did, right? I went out and I sold insurance. So my whole entire life, I'd always been paid on commissions. I never had a normal salary in my life. In college, I worked on farms. Then I started, my only normal salary was I was a secretary Um, for an insurance company called Aflac, right? Um, And I was promptly three months later fired. They're Like, you're the worst secretary we've ever had, but everybody loves you. So why don't you go out and sell? And so I did that. Then I moved back home with my dad and I started selling insurance. So I just made money off whatever we sold to our clients, right? So that was probably the best thing that's ever happened to me because it was ingrained in my mind that revenue comes from action. Revenue comes Mm. from action. And that's, you know, it's interesting because if you look at so many entrepreneurs and business people, so many of them are sales people or it's Grant Cardone, all these people, right? And I think one of the reasons that happens is because that correlation of revenue and action is just like, if I'm not doing it, and it can be definitely a downside because it's like, if I'm not doing right, I, like if I trying to relax for me is hard because I, first of right. all, I just love what I do. I love what I do. Like, I'm like, I play the greatest game in the world and I want to win. I'm like, why would I want to stop doing this? So I want to work all the time because I think it's fun. I love my employees. I love the people that I work with. This is a blast. I am playing the greatest game on earth with the coolest people and I get to do it every day. What a blessing. But so for me, I can get really intense and really involved and I want to do everything else like that. And I think it comes so largely because once you get it, like once you get that taste, where it's like, wow, I'm really in control of my own destiny. I can really make my own change. I can really go. And salespeople, they get that taste. And then all of a sudden, it's just like, they're just not satisfied. They're having fun. So, But of course, it's highs and lows. When things went bad for me, it was bad. So me and my wife had to live on, we lived on 30% of our income. Because I knew if I lose a big client, I could lose 40% of my income. Then right. that taught me another skill. We got to save. And it also taught me the most important skill ever. I have to have income that is not tied to my time. And so I had this great thing where I was making good money because I could go out and sell. And the more that I sold, and it took years to build up, right? I mean, the first, uh, for a long time, we were living on my wife's uh, um, uh, tips that she was making in a Chinese food restaurant where we went to school. I was making $800 a month. And I had to build and stack up those relationships and sales. So it took me three years. But then all of a sudden, we started making good money. We had to live on very little And then after a while I'm like, oh, this is awesome, but I can never stop this. And it wasn't that stopping was a problem, but that led me to another light bulb moment. If I can't stop, I can't compound. And if I can't compound, my growth is limited. And that I could not handle. Like I can't compound my wealth because there's only so much time that I have. So I can only grow my income so much. And two, it's dependent on me. So I can't put systems, process people in place and have it grow without me. So then it was like, well, what do we gotta do? So then me and my dad started investing in real estate, right? So we buy these little storage facilities out because we're like, ah, there's no toilets. So why not? Let's try that. I didn't like multifamily. Um, and we realized, wow, we don't know anything about this industry. <laughs> so It was like, this is not what we thought it was. And as I learned more about it, I actually loved it because of two things. First of all, I looked at it and I'm like, wow, everybody's got it wrong. This isn't a real estate asset. This is a business. I have all these levers that I can change and pull to do revenue. So I can buy bad performing businesses and turn them around because that's what I did. I do mergers and acquisitions. I buy brokerage firms and we take in our technology and skill, turn them around, right? So I'm like sitting here going, hey, I like this a lot. So I actually didn't ever like real estate. I like businesses because my time... To my return was all screwed up in real estate because I'm a sales guy. I'm like, if I sell one client, they're going to pay me $50,000 a year. If I buy one fourplex, I'm going to make a few hundred. That doesn't make sense to me, right? right? Um, and so that was a hard gap to get. And I was discounting a few things. I didn't understand the power of real estate. So I was discounting wealth creation. I was discounting stacking, passive income, everything, which you know, if hindsight's twenty twenty, and you look back, that cost me probably a ton, ton of money. But that's I, I was learning, and so it, I wasn't ready. It wasn't ready for me. I wasn't ready for it. And so once we started investing in self storage, I said, "Oh, this asset class matches my skills." That means there's so there's two ways. I actually it's funny. I was just make a YouTube video about this, and this is good for every entrepreneur, every real estate uh, person on earth. There's two ways you get value. I, I hope you don't mind me going off on this. No, tangent, absolutely, go wonderful. ahead. We're learning. Okay, wonderful. So there's two ways that you um, have value, right? So there's given value and there's earned value. And in a marketplace, there's assets that the value is given, meaning you don't have to fundamentally do anything. That the asset, for some reason, isn't performing at a market level. And that's usually dependent on operators. They're not charging the right rents. They're not doing this. So you look and they're under market levels for the exact same quality. That means, if you buying it, you don't have to do anything. You buy it, you change the rent, you give out the rent, rent goes up, boom, you just made $200,000 in wealth, and now your income just doubled off that asset, so your return on your money is astronomical, right? right? This is given value. You didn't do it, the market did it, right? And so when I first started looking, I was obsessed with given value. And the reason I was, was because I have something that I need that's very important when investing, buying businesses, anything. And that's an MOS. And people understand MOS from the margin of safety from our Oracle of Omaha. And, you know, he talks a lot about that margin of safety. But it's not margin of safety to me. It's margin of stupidity. Because I realize there's so much I don't know. And I could screw up so much. And that thought was stopping me from action. Because I go, and I, in, in, in the reality was true. I can't know everything. Right. So there's so much risk. And I thought, well, then how does everybody else do it? Because you have two types of knowledge. You have static and dynamic. Static knowledge is something you read out of a book. It's good on one playing field, right? It's just the same thing always. Dynamic knowledge is when you do. It's learning. So now all these variables can come in and change, and I can adjust to them, and I can work with them. Dynamic knowledge is much more valuable because dynamic knowledge has to do with forced value. So I had static knowledge. I read my Rich Dad Poor Dad books. I did these other things, but I didn't invest in real estate. When I went to look in and said, I can't do this because I don't have knowledge. That's when I realized, oh, all I have to do is have a margin of stupidity. Meaning, if I can take this aspect of value, which the market gives me, it's not dependent on me. So even if I'm an idiot, it'll work out (laughs) that I liked. And so that's all I did. I looked for idiot-proof investments, right? That the value was given to me, not because of me, but because of the market. Then, as I gained dynamic knowledge, I looked for the next one, right? And that is created value. And that's the value that I do when I come in and I change things bring them up. As we got bigger, the created value started to get astronomical. So then I could find assets with given value and I could make creative value and my returns exploded, right? And now I have static and dynamic knowledge that I'm applying to capture both sets of those value. And then we just started to rip and roar. Then it was like, I could identify exactly what assets. The risk was like nothing because I knew my upside. I knew everything. Then we could do scarier things like developing. So, but anyways, we're starting to accrue these assets and I'm like, Hey, I really like this. So I'm on top of the world, right? I've got this portfolio of real estate, my job, I'm now running this firm that was, uh, owned by a company out of, uh, Um, Illinois, Chicago. I was the regional manager in our state, right? I got paid really good money to do it. Um, You know, these big companies that have golden handcuffs. So I'm getting paid 200 plus thousand, right? You know, but you work your butt off and I'm working for my bonuses and everything. And I have this real estate that's finally producing, doing really good for us. And right when I'm on top of the world, I'm down in California at a company event, right? Um, That's when I got sick. Next thing I know, my life is over, I'm paralyzed, I'm in the hospital, and by the time, once, after after a few months, they took my tube out of my neck so I could speak, and I got off the breathing machine, and like a week later, my boss came in, let me know, I'm fired, I lost my job sitting paralyzed in a hospital, and that was okay, I had passive income coming in from my real estate investment today, now I lost the majority of my income, right, but um, because of my lifestyle that I lived, I put everything into my investments uh, and me and my wife, gee, it's not like I, I, I had a huge fluctuation of income because as a business owner and investor, you have to get comfortable with operating on the revenues of a business, not off a paycheck. Right. And those fluctuate. And that's something you got to know fast. And, and salespeople learn that fast. Like We think that like these businesses are just machines that put out a check every single day at the same... That's not how it works. Right. They fluctuate massively quarter by quarter, things like that. So I may have a quarterly distribution from one of my companies that is like fourth quarter that will be 30% of all the income that that asset. And so like we have a product company we sell online, right? Well, our fourth quarter, or I guess first quarter, because that's when we distribute the check from the fourth quarter. But once that check comes in, that makes up 30 to 40% of all the income the entire year that we'll ever gain on that asset. So it fluctuates, which is fine if you know how to control money and capital. Well, that we to that. But the point of it being is because I understood that how money really works, it, instead of this illusion of the paycheck where it just hits my bank account and I should live and max that out, right? Um, I was totally ready for it. And when, too, when I went paralyzed, let, let me illustrate. straight. It's really important for everyone to understand. I'd spent years building this real estate portfolio. I was making money. Like it, it, I wasn't. I didn't all of a sudden go down to like $50,000. So, so I was okay. I don't want there to be any misconception where they're like, oh, you were living on $30,000 and you're making two hundred and fifty. No, I lived a normal good life. I had a great house. We had a great thing. The point was though, I knew I could lose that and not default on my house, not know what I'm going to do with my kids, that kind of stuff. So I put myself in this position. Then I'm at home sitting in my wheelchair and now I'm like, well, now I have all this time. Do I end up going back? Do I try to get better and in a few years, see if I can get hired by the same company? And the answer was clear to me. No, I'm leveraging all my skills, talents and everything like that for me, for my work. So immediately after, I mean, I was in pain pretty much 24 seven. So I didn't really sleep or anything else like that. So I couldn't work normal. Like, and so it was, I would go in and work when I could in my wheelchair and then my brother would bring me home and I'd end up sleeping the rest of the day or just trying to take pain meds to survive through the day. So as this time went on slowly, but the point was I started immediately and I started small and I did what I could and I started a company right off the bat. And then I started two more companies and now I have a syndicating company that I ran. and so. I I started to work for me and build structures that could scale, so I could get that result. And I allocated that time appropriately. And it I I all of a sudden, it's funny because it's like I had the fruits of my labor for 15 years of working two jobs. Like you know it's I, I, it was almost like I was a workaholic, but I was working for my future, which ended up saving me and my family's life, right? Um, but I worked all the time. Then all of a sudden. I lost my ability to earn money in a certain way. And I had, to, I had to, who is AJ? I had to rethink all of that. But if it wasn't for those basic principles starting out, I would have never been in that position to do any of that, mm. right? So like when I tell everybody is you got to start now, like what's your income? What little money can you save? What can you put to work? How can you get into a passive investment real estate that you can scale? How can you figure out a model that can grow? Right? Because you want to get yourself off that earned income. But you also want to make sure that you're protected against downsides big things, because the people that survive in the economy are the people that win. A lot of people are confused about this. They think you need to make some app, you need to do everything else like that, or you have to pick a winning stock. No, that's gambling. Hmm. The people in the economy that are the biggest and the best are the ones that survive. So I've been through two recessions. I went through the great recession owning real estate and a business my consulting business for on the benefit side for insurance, I was working with 300 companies, which at the time, 50% of them were basically failing. And I got to see all those companies and what they were doing. And I got to see the ones that survived and the ones didn't. Because when you survive the downturn, which downturns are coming, they always do, always will. It's just part of it. It's how it works. So once they survived, though, the market has been cleansed, they explode. Well, that's what happened to us. The market was cleansed by people that were doing bad things and everything else like that. We took advantage. I knew, and we said this is the time. Let's leverage up. I was buying real estate when people were like, "Dude, what are you doing? You're a moron." Literally, I, I built my I built my house, which was this really big, nice house, right, and everything. And I had my neighbors that were professional syndicators in real estate. Tell me, what are you doing? You're building a house in the worst real estate economic downturn we've ever had in the history of the world. And you're buying a nice home in a nice neighborhood. Like those are the homes that right. will not sell. They're like, your value is like nothing. Like you're an idiot. There's no even market for this. I built it for $400,000. Five years later, I sold it for like <laughs> 1.2 or three, right? And so it, it's this idea that I said, listen, y- there's all this noise, but I, the way that money and fundamentals work is simple and the process is always true. And if you can start applying those really basic things, which today where I live, a $400,000 house isn't even available. You can't even find it. It doesn't even exist. Like there is no $400,000 homes when I live. So when I looked at it, I was looking at, they're looking at all these, well, maybe in the future and what does the Fed do? Everything else like that. And I looked at it, here's how much I make and here's what I can get for $400,000. That takes roughly like 5% of my my monthly income. Like this is amazing. Like, you know, I don't care about those other things, right? And then I focused on buying assets that were cash flowing, that produced an amazing return, right? And we just poured all our money into those. And people were just getting rid of assets as fast as they could. And then we, after that, once it got even higher, we started developing. We started doing more. So coming back to the very first what you were talking about, now all of a sudden we have a portfolio. It's $150 million plus. I got five deals that were are we're, we're under contract and just closed like a million square feet across the United States, Midwest, everything. And people look at it like, oh, so what did you do? I just want to get there. I'm like, oh, it's super simple, right? The only thing you have to do is work your butt off for 15 years, make really good decisions, take advantage when times are hard and and go through hell in a handbasket, right? And then as you gain dynamic knowledge, learn. Now, the great thing about this is the margin of stupidity. Anybody can do it. I knew nothing about real estate. I knew nothing about product businesses. I knew nothing about anything. It didn't even matter. As long as I knew I needed a margin of stupidity, I could be stupid and do it. And you can do that in every industry, in every asset class. The only reason I'm big now is because I made sure I had a margin of stupidity so I could learn. Because the margin of stupidity allows you to learn. And then you can leverage knowledge. You can leverage your abilities. And you can leverage those things that are building. The people that are big, your heroes that you talk about, are only heroes because they leverage resources. They leverage time, they leverage money, they leverage technology, and they leverage it on top of systems that they know and create. If you don't know it, you can't leverage it and you can't get big. So start small, start with the margin of stupidity, and be okay with your own stupidity. Get going, start building. Those small things, they act like these ginormous levers in the future, and then all of a sudden people are asking, how did you get to this point? What did you do, right? And you're like, it's just not as complicated.
0: 100%, man. It's just... So much wisdom in there, and we're definitely gonna unpack so much of this. But it it, it sums up and what I heard from it was in the beginning they'll ask you why you're doing it, but in the end they'll ask you how you did it, right? So you got to stay true to your own um, your own voice, your own yeah. mission, your own purpose because we all know what it is. But we we oh dude we start watching other people, <laughs> yes. and then from there we get that paralysis yeah. of analysis, uh-huh. right? And then we don't take action on anything. Yes, when if and when we yes. were young, you know what's so funny is once you get older you're like ah, oh, what do you want but like i got a three-year-old daughter and i know you got young kids but i got a three-year-old daughter and she never it's all she knows what she wants and she's gonna say it like i'm like what do you want to eat um yeah. i want cheeseburgers or i want this or i want that so it's like when you were younger you were decisive yeah. right you made a decision you went with it but as you got yes. older you started to second guess yourself <laughs> so you have to go back to that inner child right yeah. and i gotta just know i i know you know
1: they yeah. they trust their intuition so much. Well, and two, they trust their intuition. And two, I think like when you when you look at these things, I am dyslexic, right? So I was the kid in school that they're like, you're a moron, right? Like it was like you like you can't do anything. Like in my I was put in a class with like the handicapped kids. Because I couldn't do certain numbers and read certain things because I was dyslexic, right? And now the reality of the situation was I was in no way, shape, or form an idiot and I wasn't stupid. And I was very fortunate to have a mama bear and she would like take me out. of school. When they're trying to figure out why I can't read and they gave me all this stuff and then they're like, you need to put them on medications, you need to do this. We'd walk out and she'd pull, pull me up right, right there in the hallway and say, listen, they don't know what they're talking about. You're not dumb. You're not things, right? So I always had this thing in the back of my mind, like everyone treats me and tells me like I'm dumb. And then finally, my my mom was like, listen, you have him go take tests because then I stopped trying in school. So I totally stopped trying. I, I started skipping school and skiing. I didn't even do anything. I wouldn't even do the homework because I'm like, this doesn't make sense for me to be competing or to doing it in the system where we already know I'm a moron, right? And so I'm like, why would I even do it? It's already been decided. We know this. It's known. And so my, my mom and my dad were like, listen, man, this doesn't work. You don't get to not go to school to go right. skiing, right? And so they're like, we're going to give you two options here. Um, but most important, we agree you're not stupid. So they're like, you need to go take a uh, equivalency test is what it was called then. So I was 15 years old. And so I went and took a bunch of the equivalency tests and I scored super high on like equivalencies and IQs and everything else like that. And they're like, so they're like, see, it's not you that's failing. It's the system that's failed you. And I'm like, and so then it became, well, okay, that may be true, but this is the system, not it. So then my parents made probably the best decision ever. They're like, you're right. You're out of school. But why keep you in a system that you do? And so I went to college at 16 and uh, I left, went to college. um, And this is, you know, coming from someone that's was, a genuine idiot, right? I mean, like, I couldn't even hardly write. Like, it was, uh, you know, I'm dyslexic. E- even now, like, if I write an email, I know you that somebody's gonna look at this and be like, what, what the heck is he an eighth grader, right? Uh, uh, exactly. I gotta get a proofread. I gotta get it sent out before I make an Instagram post. I'm like, I gotta get a proofread. Um, just because my brain doesn't work that way. And that's okay. So I became very comfortable with being dumb and knowing that this relationship between what people think you are and are doesn't exist it's not true Mm. it doesn't matter because they can say something and it has nothing to do with results and all the smartest kids in my school call me to ask what to do today i'm not a part of a graduating class nothing else like that i left college i went on i got sales jobs i started being an entrepreneur right and that for me is the biggest takeaway i when you look at the heroes everything else you're like i'm like you're talking to a dyslexic kid that couldn't do very good in school. I was a horrible public speaker. Like, I, so I, you know, I was in church once and I and give a public speaker. And it's like you're, you're speaking at a church and you look out and you're like, you know, everybody's like, oh my God. You just know, you're like, I am so bad at this, right? Like, it was like so bad at this. And now I do keynote speakers in front of three, 4,000 people. Um, so getting comfortable and knowing that it's okay to not know, to be wrong, and to have faith but that it doesn't mean that's who you are. And for me, faith was a very important part of my life. And it was identifying, I'm going to move forward in everything that I do, knowing that I can become better and that I can be a better person and that I don't need to result down to the lowest level of me because that's not who I am. That just may be in a particular part of my journey. And uh, that is how entrepreneurs work. You're building something in the future that doesn't exist and you don't have the skills to do it. You don't because that's not how it works. You have to adapt and you have to learn. You have to get people in. You have to be team players. You think Elon Musk right. built all this stuff on his own? He has like tens of thousands of people that work at it. He has more PhDs than Harvard working for him to make things happen. Now, that doesn't mean he's not smart, a genius, not at all. But we don't, success doesn't happen on an island and it's not dependent on your intellect or your resources. Entrepreneurs create, we build success and we do that by putting us in our own position. We create a position around us for it. We're okay with the down flaws because you have to be, nobody's perfect. And I just feel like so many entrepreneurs, we have rockstar entrepreneurs and what you said is, uh, is like Superman, right? We have this entrepreneur bell curve that I love to talk about right. where we talk, it's like the hero's journey. And because of how we tell stories, you talk about Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, you talk about all these people and it starts out, he was nothing, but he was so smart and he built everything and he was successful. But the problem with those stories is it's not applicable to us. And it makes us go, yeah, but I'm not him. So I obviously can't do that. And that's so far from the truth. It doesn't work that way. That's not how business economics work because markets don't care about you. They don't care what you look like. They don't care about your degree. Markets care about one thing and one thing only. They care about price, they care about value, they care about service, and as long as you can deliver that to them, you'll be successful.
0: Man, so much wisdom. I I feel like before I can, you answer all of the, the questions before I can even get them out, but again, I, I never wanna stop. Sorry. <laughs> again, you're giving so much value, and I'm sure somebody's watching or listening to this right now, like absolutely, they agree with everything that you're saying, and I know I definitely do. Let me ask though, there's something, one of the things that people struggle with is when they're gonna start a company because a lot of people have ideas and these ideas could be you know, million dollar ideas, but they don't understand the power of partnerships and leverage. And from a strategic standpoint, they say, okay, well, you know what, I'm the salesman, but I I don't necessarily know how to do the marketing. Or maybe I know how to do both, but I don't Mm -hmm. know how to do the paperwork or I don't wanna do the phone calls. How have you been able with starting multiple companies you're like, what does your process look like when you decide you're going to start a company and you know, you can't be the end all be all who's your first hire?
1: Yeah. All right. So man, talk about a good question. Like this is like at the crux of it. So it comes back to this, I think of what you hit on there. I can't do everything. I got possible. I can't do everything. So first and foremost, when you're truly starting out, you need mentors. Okay. You need mentors because what you, what you need to learn to do you can't do at school. And dynamic learning is a way of learning how to learn. How schools teach us to learn is not how you learn to be successful. So you gotta forget that. You need mentors mm. that can show you the way when you're given a situation. So I had my father, right? And I just like I can't express the position that I was put in by having a mom and dad that were just you know, good to me. I, I was a huge leg up, but it was a huge leg up because I had um, good uh, foundational people in my life that could mentor me to say, don't do that. It's stupid, right? If you don't have those, that's not an excuse. Go get them. I, I, I mentored, I mentored one of my best friends and a person I mentored, um, Rock belon When he came to me, he was 20 years old and he kept bugging me. Like the guy just kept bugging me. He was like, hey, can I come? I'll work for you for free. I'm like, dude, no, right? I'll go out to lunch with you. Like, I loved his hustle. I loved it. He's like, oh, I'm going to sell these t-shirts that say this thing. And and I was very blunt with him. I'm like, dude, you don't have a model. You don't have a P&L. You don't, like, none of this is going to work. And I said, the only way I'm going to talk to you is if you get serious about this, you need to go look what a P&L is. You need to look where your money's going, how you're making it. You need to come back with me. fact, he immediately did it. I'm like, oh, Okay. So then I had another conversation. He kept doing it. Then eventually I hired him. He came on and then I he'd come in with questions about his company. He he runs, He what did he do last month? Six million dollars last month um, on his company's gym reapers. You can go look him up. I've got podcasts with him on, on my podcast and everything. But as he would come to me, I didn't tell him what to do. I didn't make him successful. That's not how it worked. I didn't create his company for him at all. I didn't do anything with it. It was his company, but when he would come and say, well, hey, I have some ideas, this is how you should look at this. This is why you're wrong. And he took that and used that to apply into his business and create damage, right? So he didn't have anything in life. He was a poor kid. He he lived in a trailer, right? His parents were divorced. He had nobody in that to it. He knew he needed it. He reached out. He didn't make me do anything for him, nothing, right? He did it, and he didn't expect me to give anything to him. So if you're starting out, go find mentors, right? And I, even with like me and my dad, so me and my dad came up and I'm like, hey, I think we can do things a lot better than this. Sales is great. He taught me how to sell. At Parker,
2: our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation and partnership. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
1: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. But I'm like, this is short lived. We need to do more. And me and my dad went and got mentors around us. So then we started asking questions. So surrounding yourself is the first thing. From there, you say, now I've got an idea. I have people I can look to. Okay. So I've got these mentors that can help me. But there's, two types of people. You have implementers, right? And then you have visionaries. And this is always true in every organization. So I am not good with details. I'm dyslexic. But I am really good about working harder than any other person you've ever met in your life. I'll outwork anybody. I'll put everyone first. I'll work on companies for years and not take money out of it. And I can bring people in and they know I'll treat them right. I'll do right by them. And my superpower ends up turning out to be other people. And I know how to treat them. I know how to be good to them. I give them recognition. I don't take all the credit. And I recognize my own faults. And that is such a good characteristic when you're trying to get good people in, right? And so, but two, at the same time, like, I don't, it's, I'm like, listen, I don't know how to do this, but it doesn't matter. We're doing it. And I know we can. So I'm absolute resolute in our ability on our way to a billion dollar company. Which were over a quarter of the way there. Now we'll probably be there in the next two, three years. Um, and when you look at that, I needed implementers, really good strategic people. So my sister married um, an accountant out of college, right? Uh, his name's Sam Whitaker, right? And I love Sam. He's totally opposite of me. Like you've got me, you got Sam. I built an uh, so our office that we built has glass walls in front of all the offices, so you have uh, hard walls on the sides, but you can look in and see everybody. He's like. He, he was the only person, like he—he he was the only person that I gave not a glass wall and a hard, solid door that wasn't glass, because he's like, I gotta go in, I gotta do my numbers, and I gotta look at all the little things, right, and everything like that. Um, and we brought him on to be a partner with us because his attention to detail on contracts, money, things like that—the implementing side was so good. I managed employees, and together we worked in creating processes and systems. And then from there, we started up every other company. We said, who are implementers? Who are things? I'd go and I'd find, okay, so we started a syndication company. We have three different divisions. I have a um, investor relations division. I have a development division and I have an acquisition development or an acquisition. I need my three horsemen. I need the three people that are going to go out and make this happen. These are the implementers. I was doing kind of everything myself. So you don't have money when you start out to hire people. So the first year and a half, I was doing everything myself, right? I got my first deal or two. And then immediately, instead of taking that money, I went and hired somebody else, right? And then right. over the next year, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, we got $80 million in deals on the docket. Um, so then I identified the areas in the businesses that, first of all, I wasn't good or I shouldn't be working on. So self, I'm big on self-auditing. I shouldn't be doing this. I'm not very good at this. We need to get somebody that is great on this, and implementer. As we grew, we realized, okay, we've got all these things going for this company. Um, uh, we have deals coming through. We need closing dates. We have processing on how we turn this over to the management company, like all the logistics and everything. Remember, I'm not good with details and organization. I have to do interviews. I'm speaking. I'm traveling, looking at deals. i am got to uh, get all the paperwork done. So then I hired my left-hand person. I sent out uh, an email for requests for on all the different Indeed platform right people to hire one of the things though that i did and the biggest determining factor i said before you could even interview you have to take this personality test and then once they all came back we looked at it and the one person we hired we came back it was like she's obsessed with organization details processes right she wants to do like all this stuff, and we're like she's it she's perfect so then she comes in to organize all our processes and systems to make sure they go so Find the right people that could sit on the right places in the bus. That's the key to every successful organization. And when you start out, when you have the ability to, you can either pay for the person or you can partner with them. So when you start out, you usually don't have a lot of money. So partnering is the best uh, one to do that. And a lot of people want to partner with people that are their friends or people that they're just like, because we're of the same mind. We're talking all right. night and it's like, this is awesome, right? And usually those actually turn out to be the worst partners. Because you already have those skill sets. So normally speaking, you need to partner with somebody that is good at the things you don't. So if you're not, if you're an implementer, if you're like, I don't like people, I don't want to speak. I don't want to be doing any of those things. You need to hire a sales guy. You need to hire the salesman to, or you need to be partnered with the salesperson, more that visionary role. And so once you just offset those things, that's when the fire really happens.
0: Man, so much wisdom. It reminds me of the book, and I know somebody else, especially if they've been listening and watching the podcast for a while, I always talk about the book Rocket Fuel, and that was uh, yes. just right there, right? That integrator yeah. and the visionary. And it's so funny because I'm just like you. I'm definitely that visionary. The small details, it's like I don't I don't wanna I wanna be just big picture. I wanna be able to pitch yeah. the vision. I wanna be able to keep people on board, nurture on them, love on them, right? Same yeah. as you. So I can definitely relate to that. So so much yeah. wisdom. Now and, and, and I appreciate and the same you with rocket for sharing. fuel.
1: Yeah, the yeah. thing with Rocket Fuel, it's a great book of stuff, but I, I don't, like, they talk a lot about partnerships and everything, but what they don't talk about, like, lots of times in Rocket Fuel is the individual hiring and the placement of the people. So, and Good to Great talked a lot about this, and I, and I read Good to Great a long time ago, right? And that's where I got the putting the right people in the right seats on the bus. Um, and a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, Good to Great's for big organizations. And I'm like, well, do you want to be a big organization? Hmm. Because if so, you should figure out how they frickin built it. Because... That's the key is where do we put people? How should they act? Then the next step of that is how do we how do we monitor? So how do we make sure that the result that we want is happening? And that's where before you hire people, you need to have some re- resemblance of processes and systems. We need to do X, 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 and X to get y, right? Like you need right. to have that figured out so they can come in and do it. And if you don't, you need to hire somebody that can create. The processes and systems for you to run. EOS is a great book to read too. On top of that, you have um, what's the the book that the EOS program is basically based off of? I read it so long ago. It talks about the difference of being a uh, business and basically just a one-person gig, right? And this has to do with scale, everything else. Um, yeah.
0: Is it by Michael Gerber? Um,
1: no, it's not by Michael Gerber. Let me, you it's know, right. I can we'll find we'll it. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll it and put it in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cause it's, it's a good book. Cause it talks about, it talks about the difference of being a one man show and being a business and get, getting yourself out of all the day-to-day stuff. Um, so you could scale and it, this is what me and you were talking about, right? That's exactly what we're talking about. Putting the right people, identifying them and creating processes so you can measure their success and, Once you do that, that becomes very easy. You can see it all. And then all of a sudden it's like, hey, we need to hire this person to do this. We need to have this set up. I have this technology to monitor what they're doing, how they're doing it. And once you get that dynamic knowledge, I don't have the direct answer, right? It's not like I'm saying, go hire Bob and I want you to do Bob to do this. No, I know how to look at my business and find out who that person is and then figure out how to create a process for them. That's actually the knowledge that you need. Mm. That's the knowledge you need.
0: Wow. I love that, man. That's so, so, so solid. Um, no, it's so funny because we've been having so much on just understanding the strategies after you have a goal in place, going back to your desire and then understanding the right strategies. But one of the things that you said early on that I wanted to definitely tap into before our conversation ends is having the right model. And a lot of people right now, they're looking into real estate and they're trying to figure out what the right model is. Right. I think the most glamorous yeah. model that's out there is wholesaling, right? Wholesaling of some yeah. point, and And a lot of people start off wholesaling. houses, quick and big. It's Yeah, but they know that eventually that's not where they want to stay and maybe yeah. it's not even where they want to start. And you've been able to really become a profound player in the self-storage space, right? So talk to me about do you think for somebody that is just starting out, do you think that that's a – is that an area that you would recommend or is it like, no, nah, I would say get your feet wet here,
1: get you a little bit of capital and then move to this space? No, don't wait. Um, don't so wait. when I look at – yeah, don't wait. If you're going to do something, so like, like you're talking about effort and time that you need to put in. The effort to do small things is the exact same time thing as the effort to do big things. And mm-hmm. for me, commercial real estate, CRE, right? If you want to end up in there, just start there. Because they like, I think Self Storage offers the greatest opportunity for any individual to get into commercial assets. And the reason why is this the market is divided, unlike any other commercial asset outside mobile homes. Talk about that a bit. So what happens with the self-storage market is 74% of all self-storage assets are owned by single owner operators and their mom and pop. Now that's changing rapidly. When I got in the game, it was 92% of all self-storage facility operators were owned by single operators. So think about that because I went through the great recession when nobody was buying and nobody was selling and yeah. nobody was big. So literally this happened in a 10 year time frame where 20% of the market evaporated into bigger players, like me, right? So, but when you compare this to any other asset class, multifamily, retail, large industrial, it's the opposite. There are only 20% of those markets are owned by mom and pop. So when I looked at how I wanted to get started, it was simple. Well, I need opportunity and I need a place that I can compete. Well, 72% of this market I can buy... And two, 72% of this market is individuals, mom and pops that are probably not doing a very good job. So for me, it would just made sense. It was like, there's just opportunity here for me to get in, to buy and make change. I looked at multifamily and I looked at all these people in multifamily and I'm like, whoa, you guys are freaking awesome. Yeah. How am I supposed to compete with you? So I walked away from it because I didn't get it. I didn't. How am I going to compete with the 20% when everybody's amazing? Right? I needed a margin of stupidity and I just couldn't find it there. Um, not saying that you can't or you won't or don't or anything else like that. That just wasn't my game based upon my skill set and my knowledge. Um, so, self so storage, though, too, I could start really small. I could go into fifth tier markets in a small city and buy something for a few hundred thousand dollars. Um, it, it gets a a lot harder to find commercial assets in other industries like retail, things like that, that I could start so small so I could learn, grow and compound. Self-storage, those assets still exist. They're everywhere. Mm. Um, so, And two, self-storage for me then offered the second opportunity, which is levers. The levers to change revenue and value. There was more levers that I could change in a self-storage facility to adjust the value. What that meant is there was more things that I could do to buy it and turn it around. I didn't like static things and static revenue. I was an entrepreneur. I wanted to make it better and I wanted it to grow. So if a real estate asset couldn't allow that, it was just like, well, just wait till it's better. Man, I hated that idea. So Just break- wait in 10 years, then it'll be good. And I'm like, I want it good now. Yeah, no, definitely. But break it down because I know some
0: people were saying, okay, there's more levers. Give us a couple of examples of levers of what you could change in a
1: self-storage. 100%. So if you look at a city right now and you have a multifamily facility, okay, or multifamily, If you have a two bedroom, one bathroom, you've got one and an asset that is of similar quality a mile down the road, those two apartments are trading at the exact same rate. There's no difference, right? And you have maybe three different types of apartments. I buy a self storage facility and I have 10 to 12, maybe even 15 climate controlled, drive up, RV parking, 10 by 50s or 10 by 20s, five by fives, closet space. I have wine storage, all of those are different products. They have different customers. And two, when I look across the market, the facility down the road is selling theirs at a totally different price. Mm. So there's inefficiencies, it's not very efficient, right? What that meant was that I could go buy the facility, I have 15 products that I can now sell, and I can change prices at any time because you have month to month contracts. Mm. So every single month, like right now in my facilities, Every day that I wake up, somebody just got a rent increase. Every day, right? And then every month that goes on, my facility's revenues are all moving up. Every month. And we can play with that and see demand. So I can adjust how much goes. Like, oh, this size needs a 12% increase in this market. This size needs this. So the revenue management side in self-storage is very dynamic. We look at ourselves like hotels or airlines. They're always changing, right? And then I can also add insurance. I can add products, I can add services, towing, vehicles, all that kind of stuff. And most importantly, I can market very efficiently. So I can find my dream customer and then I can go out and use marketing strategies to get them and bring them in. Because not every customer in self storage pays the same. So everybody basically pays the same for a two bedroom, one bathroom, right? But in self storage, I have price sensitive, I have um, location sensitive, and then I have quality sensitive customers. And the variance on that is astronomical. So I can identify, listen, you're a location-sensitive customer, meaning you want it by your house. So you don't go past a mile or two to rent a self-storage facility because he's he's location-sensitive. So the value of that unit to him versus someone that's just three miles away may be 40% more. Mm. Well, why do I want that guy? Get rid of that guy. I'm going to go after this guy, and I'm going to charge 40% more for that storage facility. So those are the types of things that we do. So I can buy a facility, the exact same unit type, right? I may put zero cap- CapEx in it and I'll increase revenue by 40%. Wow.
0: Man, so much. I'm sure somebody else is is thinking right now, I got to get into self-storage for sure. And I think that it's just, it's always been, I would say more of an untapped market because again, with the public, and it's kind of like when you think of the betting world, right? You think of public money versus smart money, right? And all of the public money is in single family houses. Some people are now, you know, move up to multifamily, but people aren't talking about, you know, self-storage. Right. And and I think that a lot of yeah. it, it just becomes, it's almost like foreclosures. I'm sure you've heard the stories back in the day. You, you should just go to the courthouse, right? And then you would see the same four or five guys yeah. that's right in that room. And so a lot of the times, if you don't have the right mentor with the right model, a lot of the times yes. that's where it could feel daunting and you're like, okay, I can never get in there.
1: Yes. Yeah. And, and with self-storage, the downsides to self-storage to me are very clear. So First of all, self-storage in the commercial assets space, its worst enemy is self-storage. So you can overbuild a market. So that's your number one danger is that a market will be overbuilt. They'll build too many units not to fill demand and then prices have to lower, right? Um, But the second part is uh, uh, the operational complexity part. Now, for most people, they're like, oh, self-storage is really simple. There's no bathrooms. There's no things like that. That was why I got in it, Right. But in order to do all the things that I was talking about to really actually make this thing work and make good money, um, it takes more operational know-how. I mean, I got we have training programs for employees. We have sales programs. We have insurance upsell programs. We have revenue management software. We have traveling trainers, audit systems. Like, you know, it's we're running a business and we treat it like one. Um, and so then all of a sudden you get some people that are like, oh, I don't like that aspect about it. And two, it also lends to the fact that Big boys get bigger, right? Now, that's true in anything. But with self-storage, there's an actual operational edge, right? Like I was telling you about, one storage facility may have 40% lower revenue than the other one. That's all due to operations. So performance of big guys and small guys is so, so different. But to me, all those downsides that people talk about, I'm like, that's actually the upside. Hmm. And two, self-storage, I actually think you can make way more passive. So small facilities, you can totally automate it, 100%. Like I have technology that is people can rent a unit, access the doors, gates, everything off their app. I don't even need to have somebody help them. Mm. And they don't even need to change locks, nothing. So small facilities, you can really optimize and audit. So it's like really, really hands off. Um, But the bigger you go, the more complexity it gets, which... Once again, that's the opportunity.
0: So much wisdom, man. And I appreciate you sharing it. I'm sure somebody right now, they're about to go to Googling how exactly can they get into self-storage, right? And just like you said, I think when people are thinking about fifth tier markets, right? Or those small towns, a lot of, especially with baby boomers, right? And in small towns, there's just a lot of people that are needing to put their stuff into storage right now. And especially with also, and correct me if I'm wrong, because maybe you see it a different way, but when they start um, releasing uh, all of these Um moratoriums for foreclosures. Right. And people all of a sudden start getting put out and they maybe because their credit's not right at that time and they need to do some work and they have a lot of stuff. Now they got to figure out where they're going to put some of their stuff. So then it goes into storage and in a small town, you know, that's where a lot of people aren't thinking about. You know, I think about Nebraska and I say, oh man, all of like Western Nebraska or small Western Wyoming or something like that. I'm sure there's probably some, you know, some opportunities there that a lot of people are just overlooking.
1: Yeah. The, the big boys, like, so I started in small cities, right? I could never go to a small city today. And it has to do with capital allocation. For me to buy a $300,000 facility, that makes no sense. I buy five to $15 million facilities. So I'm never going to allocate capital because the return on my capital is just stupid low. And I it's just like that just doesn't operationally make sense. So all the big boys never go there, which means there's more opportunity right. to get started in. And when, you, and when you're looking at the economics of self-storage, it was one of the big reasons I got into it. So I love understanding economics, particularly macroeconomics, why people are doing what they're doing. And in the United States, right, we've seen mass increases in housing cost, prices, everything. Land is finite. So what we've seen is uh, increased in the, or the decrease in abilities, uh, average American's ability to consume more square feet in a home. So square feet has been dropping in homes. Renters are going up. Then we have legislation and regulation that has come in. So now you have HOAs, you have cities. You can't build a shed there. You can't park a boat there. You can't do anything else like that. So self-storage boom isn't due because we just consume more. Like that's a fallacy that people say. It's the ability that we don't have the, uh, we don't no longer have the ability to store, utilize or rent in the same way we did 30 years ago. And two, our ability to consume is so cheap. So if you look at it like, oh, Americans are greedy and they hog more, everything else like that, it's actually counter, That's actually the opposite. So what we spend per toy now is a fraction of what it was 30 years ago. So I can buy a boat now when I could have never bought a boat 30 years ago, right? I can, you have financing are now available, but most importantly, you have outsourcing, cheaper markets, cheaper products and goods. So America's ability to consume their dollar goes way more now today than it ever did, yet their ability to house, take care of is way lower. Then you also have the distru- uh, disruption of technology, which is disrupted workforce, which means I don't need to live where I work. And two, your traditional aggregated spot in town centers to get products is now gone, meaning I can run businesses out of my home, I can consume anywhere. So now it's fragmenting and breaking it apart. So where do businesses house their stuff? Where do people put their side businesses? Where do people do all this stuff? Well, it's storage. And so the demand for storage, right. uh, economics, economically speaking, is very fundamental. And it's very, very strong. Unless we think all of a sudden, for some reason, that, you know, and people are like, well, if housing gets cheaper, well, look at the Great Recession. Housing did get cheaper and storage skyrocketed. And uh, that's what we see. Right because it benefits from momentum. And I think technology continues to disrupt, and I think that consumers will only be able to consume more because you have trillions of dollars trying to make consumers consume more at a better rate, which means you lower price of products. But real estate is only going to go up, and your ability to house things due to regulation, I mean, that's only going up. So all those things bode very, very well, business, economics, and personal consumption, right, for storage.
0: Yeah, no, I did. that makes a hundred percent sense. One thing you just mentioned though was the financing, and I'm sure somebody that's wondering about that, like if you want to try to get financing, you find something that's six hundred, seven hundred thousand, and you want to try to get financing, where do you, do you go to? Like an ag bank, or is it just a regular commercial bank? And they're going to say,
1: "Yep, you know what? We can help you." So you can do it two ways. Yeah, like before the recession, financing was very hard for recession or for storage. After the recession, every bank wants storage. They all won. Mm. It was the lowest defaulting real estate asset class in the world. So every bank was like, what have we been doing? Why aren't we buying this? All the previous notions of self-storage were wrong. People thought nobody's going to pay for a storage unit and default on their mortgage. That was actually opposite. Everybody defaulted on their mortgage. Nobody defaulted on the storage and they actually bought more. So what they found is people will keep paying storage even when they're defaulting on their big bills. (laughs) And they always pay because if you don't pay your storage unit, I'm kicking you out and I'm selling all your stuff. Right. Right. And it's so little, 50 bucks a month. I can figure that out. I can come up with that. So banks all of a sudden changed their thought. They're like, this asset is actually super safe. So we want more of it. Um, and self storage offers really good opportunities for regional banks as well as larger banks that give like S, uh, uh, SBA loans. So small business loans right now, the SBA program. Um, is really good for storage because you can come up with a business plan. You can come up with a operationally speaking and how you're going to do it. You can put down 10%. I mean, it's like we have a six-month no payment program right now for SBA loans. So to get started in self-storage, it's never been easier, ever. More banks want to do it. SBA programs are perfect for it. More people want to invest in it. Um, It's the easiest time... We've ever seen it in the self-storage is the newest real estate asset class out there. So it didn't even come big until the eighties or nineties when people actually started to even know what it was. It started in the seventies, right? Like this is a brand new asset class. That's why banks wouldn't invest in it because they're like, it's never even been through a real uh, market contraction that had to do with capital. So we don't know how to perform. Well, after that, it performed perfect. So now all their models can underwrite it and everything else. And everybody's aware. Everybody knows what self-storage is now today. 20 years ago, that wasn't true. Like if when I started in self-storage, like it was people were like, you're buying what? Why? Who buys self-storage? That's like a junkyard, right? That's not at all how it is today. Self-storage is big, high-end buildings that are class A assets and downtown markets that look like hotels. Um, It's... So it's a very traditional asset now and financing's readily available.
0: So why do you think more people are not, why is this still so slept on? Is it just because like so, I said, public money smart money?
1: Yeah, I, I think it, it it is a lot to do with that. I think it's a lot to do with operations. And two, also the barriers of entry for storage are much lower than other asset classes. So even if you look at like big ones, so if I've got a fund that has a billion dollars, to, to go buy $200 million of storage compared to buying $200 million of apartment complexes, it's so much harder. You're talking about storage, average storage facility probably costs $8 million on the high end. These are big storage facilities, right? And once you get into first clear, like Seattle, LA, things like that, yeah, they're going to go up to like $20 million, right? But any normal storage facility, big, high end, nice, right? 100,000 square feet, I'm paying $6 million bucks for. If you were to buy a big, high end, nice apartment building in any market in the United States, you're up into 30 plus million. Right. You go into big markets and you're gonna drop 100 million. So, for big money to spend, right, big money in the market, it, it's a lot harder to allocate. And then for most normal people, they view it as very risky. And there is, ten, so like whether it's as safe as multifamily. I, I just don't agree with this idea that even storage people say where it's a safer asset, just because there was less, de- uh, because it went bankrupt less. Um, I don't believe that means it's safer because in self-storage we do have short-term contracts, and so like you can go through a busy season, but if you don't fill up in that busy season, the year's not going to be good. So we have three, four months where you get everybody in right, and then they house. But there's always attrition every single month, so you need to be filling it up. So contractually speaking, I don't have a year long solid source of revenue that nobody, that you can't get out of. They can end first month. So if you had a market that all of a sudden was super overbuilt, occupancies are going to get lower. Now, with that said, once again, defaulting on storage is just unheard of, right? I mean, I bought some storage facilities that had defaulted in 2008, but all of them were avoidable. And, and, On any normal time outside, then you just didn't, you don't find defaulted storage. They don't exist. Hmm. And so um, it's really boring. It's a really safe, secure asset, and it can be operationally more heavy. Um, And it's just different. It's harder for people to wrap their mind around it. An apartment complex, I live in a house or I've lived in an apartment. I get how it works. Um, And I think those things, and two, it's much more niche. Like self storage people, we're self storage people right? Like you have real estate investors and they own a little of everything, right? Now, all the players in self-storage, they only do self-storage because our operations are so centric to self-storage. So I have an entire company out here with employees that are all working on operations for self-storage. Why would I go buy an apartment building? I'm not even set up for it, right? We're just storage nerds. And so you also find that in this industry. And I think it can kind of be like mobile home parks too. So yeah. mobile home parks, as far as the market goes the very same way, but mobile home parks are a lot harder to finance, right? But still mobile home park people are usually mobile home park people, right? Right. And self-storage can be the same way. And so even though there's lower barriers of entry, now with that said, people coming into storage right now is at a mass. It's the, you're talking highest levels ever seen in the last three years. So for right now, there's a lot of markets that are completely overbuilt that I wouldn't touch because so many people are trying to get in the game. Um, and is but it a sense? It's I think those are why
0: is it as easy as you know looking at what the population is? Maybe over the next three years, what the general population is expected to become?
1: No, like how do you know if it's no? Open? So you have yeah, this is this is the crux, dude. This question you just asked is you you live and die by this demand, nothing else. So understanding de- demand comes into two things. The easy part is understanding square foot per capita. How many square feet of storage per capita is in that market? And this is where we've gotten really good. Like I can really understand demand because I, you could look at a place like where I live and they have 18 square feet, 20 square feet per capita, but everybody's full. And you're like, that's insane because you can go to um, markets in the Midwest and they have six square feet per capita and there's vacancies right. and lower rates. So that confuses people. So we look at and there's some general rules that we follow. Like over eight square feet per capita is generally overbuilt. Like, a, that's a normal thing. Like If I'm going to go develop a storage facility, um, that's, you know, you, you got to be looking out for that stuff. But really, I look not so much at the square footage, but how it's being utilized. So how much square footage is being put on the market? How fast do they fill up? What is currently existing? Are they all full? And are rates going up? So it's about understanding I need as low square footage as possible. That's just a general rule, right? Um, but then, too, I also need to see the utilization. How are people utilizing self-storage in that market? Because some markets have higher utilization than others. So that's probably the most tricky thing for people getting into. It's like, I don't really know if I can understand demand. Once again, apartments or housing, things like that, it's a much simpler idea of utilization. I have 15 products in a storage facility. People may love 10 by 20s, but nobody wants 5 by 5s and 30% of my inventory is 5 by 5s demand could be high, but you're not renting. Right. So we, we find supply and demand on a per unit basis. That's where all the work comes in. That's where the value it's really, if you get demand right, you're
0: fine. And is it, so ideally if you're new getting into this, would somebody want to, you know, just like you said, look at the P and L and then try to read the numbers from there because that could be, is there a software or something? I'm sure you guys have probably developed your own software now, but is there
1: a a universal one that a lot of people use? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So there's one called Radius Plus. Now you have to understand, though, um, self-storage is really not good on the tech front. So most of the software when you get into fifth-tier markets is wrong. It just is. Um, even the ones that we use, like Radius Plus, which is the biggest, and I know those guys that built it, and it's incredible product. Um, And when you get into first tier markets, they're, they're like right on the dime, but we still go back and verify. The best thing you can do though is secret shop. If you're in a small market, small town, looking at small asset, go in, talk to the managers, see what they have, see what they don't, write it down and figure it out yourself. You need to confirm. So I take the technology and then I go and do on the ground secret shopping. We confirm, build those two things out together. And that's how we measure About it. And when
0: you say on the ground, I'd imagine you, you have somebody on the ground, right? That, that does this. This is your leverage yeah. piece going
1: back yes. to it all. For the last 15 years, I did it all the time. I did everything, right? But now we have people that go on the ground.
0: Yeah. No i and I, I definitely understand and and uh I'm sure somebody else is again they're they're creative, they're witty, and they're like, "Oh man, this is good. This has been a phenomenal conversation, my brother. I just got one last question for you, with all the wisdom that you've already shared sure. with us and how much smarter that you are, especially in the last fifteen years um and I know I, when I ask this question, a lot of people say they would never go back and they would yeah. never change anything because it made them who they are today. I always call it out and I say, "Eh, I don't know if that's true. I think we would all change something if we could, but I I give people the grace and they say they wouldn't and I understand where they're coming from. So I've learned to ask this in a different way. If there was one thing that you wish that you would have implemented sooner to accelerate your path on your journey and where you are today, what would that one thing
1: be? I want to say that's kind of easy. That's um, bringing more people on board, hiring better people sooner. Um, not waiting. Usually hiring only happens after it's an absolute necessity. And by that time, it's usually too late. Mm. Um, So it goes back to what we talked about, like bringing on a partner, strategic ability, like it's don't do it by yourself and do that quick. Identify where it needs to be, identify areas, because the people that you bring on don't just fulfill roles or take care of demand or need. They also create And so if you're trying to grow and if you want to accomplish something, most times you can't ever do it by yourself and that thing needs to be created. You need to bring them on fast and you need to partner and you need to bring on those special people immediately to create it and get it done. There you have
0: it. Man, this is, again, I want to be the first one, if no one else has told you today, to say thank you. And I really appreciate you, my brother, for all of the wisdom that you've dropped with us. Uh, We'll make sure that we put all of the links in the show notes. But for somebody who's looking to stay directly connected with you, where can they find you at?
1: Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find AJ Osborne Instagram. I'm putting everything we're doing all the time on there. I have two podcasts. One is strictly storage. So if you really want to know about storage, We put it self-storage income. And the other one that I have is just the A.J. Osborne podcast. Um, I have the best-selling book in the industry. Um, My goal, everything we do is free. Everything. There's no tripwires. There's no nothing. So I make money by doing projects, partnering with people, and people bringing deal. So we have YouTube, Instagram, all exposure, all information we put out there for everybody. So if you really want to learn about it and dig in. There's a talk.
0: There you have it. Well, remember, just as he said, Dream Nation, you got to take action. Revenue, rewards, action. And we all have a dream. You have a dream. I have a dream. Everyone has a dream. But if you do not take action on that dream, we all know that that dream will only merely be a fantasy. That's all for this one. We'll catch you on the next one. That's all we got for this episode. Thank you for sticking around. That truly means a lot to me. And hopefully that means that we delivered massive value on this one. If you haven't already, the way that you could say thank you